This morning, uh, if, if you have been with us for a while, you, you know that we've been going through uh, the first five chapters of Revelation. And before we started the, the seven churches, where Jesus is speaking to the seven churches, um, I said, you know what, we need to consider ourselves under church discipline by Jesus. And I had some folks kind of look at me like, what? We're a pretty good church. We're evangelical. We're pretty, pretty conservative. Why would we even consider ourselves under church discipline? And without considering that Jesus has something to say for us, if we think that these messages are all for somebody else, we move to a place of complacency of comfort, of ease. Today, as we come to the church in Sardis, Jesus has some hard words. Um, in the past, a couple churches, some of you may have gone, are you serious? This is harder? Yeah, this is, Jesus has some very difficult words for the church in Sardis and for Missio Dei Church. So I want to encourage you, grab, grab a Bible, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 1, page 1029, if you found yourself a pew Bible, and follow along with me, remembering these are the words of Jesus. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then, what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come to you like a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. John MacArthur, in his commentary on this part of Scripture, wrote this. The vast distances of interstellar space are unimaginably immense. The nearest stars to us are trillions of miles away. Those large distances have forced astronomer, astronomer, astronomers, astronomers, that word, to come up with an appropriate measurement for measuring that distance, the light year. One light year equals the distance that light traveling at more than 
186,000 miles per second travels in one year, more than six trillion years. The enormous, enormous distance to even the nearest star represents an interesting possibility. If a star 30 light years away from the earth exploded and died five years ago, we would not be able to tell, be able to tell by looking at it for another 25 years. Though no longer in existence, the light from the star would go on shining as if nothing has changed. This illustration perfectly sums up the situation in many churches, and I would add, individuals. They still shine with the reflecting light of a brilliant past. Looking at them from a distance, one might think nothing has changed, yet the spiritual darkness of false teaching and sinful living has extinguished the light on the inside, though some of their reputation may still remain. Such a church was the church at Sardis. It was reputed to be alive, but the Lord Jesus pronounced it to be dead. The downward spiral depicted by these churches, beginning with the Ephesian church's loss of its first love for Jesus and the continuing with Pergamum's worldliness and Thyatira's toleration of sin, reached a new low at Sardis. The church at Sardis could be well nicknamed the first church of the tares. It was a church dominated by sin, unbelief, and false doctrine. Like the fig tree in Jesus' parable, it bore leaves but no fruit. Like the rest of the seven churches, the church of Sardis was an actual existing church in John's day. Yet it symbolizes the dead churches that have existed throughout history and sadly continue to exist in our own day. The appearance of light is only an illusion. The appearance of light is only an illusion. Probably one of the most important lessons that I've learned throughout my years as a Christian, and specifically my years uh, with Missio Dei Church, is that seeing is not always believing. I, I don't want to sound cynical. I don't want to sound pessimistic. But you cannot always trust your eyes. And for some of you, you go, come on, I, I work with my hands. I, you know, Vince, construction guy, you can, you can trust what you have in your hands. But in the Christian life, you cannot always trust what you see. What I'm saying is that I'm not always impressed when I hear of a church with, with very famous pastors who write a multitude of books or who have surging memberships or have multi-million dollar budgets or expansive facilities or a reputation of great programs and ministries or growing influences in the community. Those things I just don't fall for anymore. I just don't, I don't mark those up as, wow, check them out. The problem I have in mind isn't restricted to so much even to the mega churches. Because immediately you hear multi-million dollars, you expansive facilities. For them even, is far more conspicuous in their cases. Even small congregations, congregations like ours, can be widely known for countless religious activities. 
Check out our bulletin this morning. Countless religious activities. But yet devoid of an authentic commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord. The illusion of light, the appearance of light is only an illusion. The church of Sardis, if you read back through history, the church in Sardis had a reputation in Asia Minor as an absolutely incomparable church. To all external uh, appearances, as far as what could be seen or heard, Sardis was a progressive church. It was first among its sister congregations to initiate a new program. It was full of what appeared to be vitality. It was overflowing with zeal. No doubt it was probably quite large. As John Stott says, it was positively humming with activity. Humming with activity. There was no shortage in the church of money or talent or manpower. There was every indication of life and vigor, but outward appearances are notoriously deceptive. And this socially distinguished congregation has, was a spiritual graveyard. It seemed to be alive, but it was actually dead. It had a name for virility, but it had no, name, no right to its name. Its works were beautiful grave clothes, which were a thin disguise for an ecclesiastical corpse. The eyes of Christ saw beyond the clothes to the skeleton, it was dead as mutton. I love English guys. It even stank. And we hear Jesus say in, in verse 2 of chapter 3, he goes, Jesus says, I have not found your deeds complete before the sight of my God. You're, you're, what you are doing are not complete. They're, they're just really good activities. They're good things that you're doing. It's really great that you want to come together as a community. It's really great that you want to have kids programs. It's really great that you want to have a big building. But all these things are incomplete before the sight of my God. It hints at, man, before the world... Before the sight of man, it looks like your activities are great. You are doing everything that a church should be doing. You are doing everything that, as a Christian, the world thinks that you should be doing. You're attending church. Some of you remember back in the days, twice on Sunday, even once on Wednesday, and then there's a small group probably in there somewhere. You give the appearance of this external activity that... By humanity standards, man, they are religious. They're good, faithful people. They even have a Bible sitting on one of their counters in their home. And I think it's open. If you go back, it's probably still on Psalm 23. But all the external things look great. They probably still have church membership somewhere. But before the sight of my God, who we learned before, his sight pierces to the very heart of a church, to the very heart of a man, to the very heart of a woman. Your activity is incomplete. It's lacking. 
their activity was half-hearted. It was incomplete. Maybe their motives were, were wrong. Maybe they wanted to be known as the church that does this, that has these things, that does these things. Their motives were, were wrong. Maybe they were doing it for human approval, which is a danger for, for pastors, I'm going to tell you. Because I love being noticed. Don't you? Maybe you don't like to admit it. You do. You, you need your spouse to kind of rub you just right. Your, your friends, your boss, your, everybody to notice what you're doing. That's a weakness. And as a pastor, there's, I want to be known in our community for what? For what we are doing, right? But there's the danger. There lies the danger. If we are wanting the praises of mankind for us to be noticed for our activity, we're missing it. We are just like the church in Sardis. Even if day after day, week after week, you, you have your Bible open and you read it and you're doing it for maybe just knowledge's sake, but that in itself is half-hearted. Are you praying, Lord, transform my heart, transform my mind, make me a, a better servant, make me, make me more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Take me, use me, transform me, send me out, God. Anything less than that, we're on our way to a spiritual death. George Ladd, throw up that, this quote for me, Craig. The church was not troubled by persecution. It was not disturbed by any heresy that we know of. It was not distressed by Jewish opposition. It was well known as an active, vigorous Christian congregation characterized by good works and charitable activities. But in the sight of God, all these religious activities were a failure because they were only formal and external and not infused with a life-giving Holy Spirit. Think about that. And I'm not just talking on, on a bigger level as us as an organism, as a church. I'm, think about you, your personal walk with Jesus Christ because all these pieces, all these body parts add up to a whole. Are we, are you infused with the, the life-giving Holy Spirit? Are you alive on the inside in such a way that it moves outward? Is everything that you do and say so moved? Or are you deceived? Are you suckered into something else? Here, here's the deal. Sardis may have well been the first church in history to have been filled with what we call today nominal Christians. They were Christians in name only. And, and you know what? A lot of us like to point to other churches, denominations, people, and say, oh, well, you know what they are? They're kind of nominal Christians, they're priesters. They show up on Christmas and Easter. That's, that's kind of who they are. 
They're nominal and name only. They kind of go through the form and function. Isaiah 29, talked to Jesus, or God was speaking. He said, Lord, because this people draw from me, draw with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their heart, their hearts are far from me. Man, man these, these churches can, you, they, they draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips. There's this, this real external thing that's going on. But in reality, they're far from me. In name only. They profess with their mouth, but their hearts have not been touched. Jesus said this in, in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Whitewashed tombs. People who profess during the day Jesus Christ is Lord, but yet their hearts are lifeless. So far we've noted the marks of a church which Jesus approves. He loves doctrinal orthodoxy. He loves suffering for his name. He loves a church that loves. He loves growth. And now we're at, we learn the importance of reality, genuineness, authenticity, a lifestyle that matches profession. Orthodox theology, apart from obedient lives, will never bring about renewal. See, the problem with Sardis is that They were not watching their lives. They were not watching their doctrine. Their eyes were fixed on activity, complacency, their comfort place in the world. And it really matches up with their story. Here's here's a story of Sardis. 700 years before this letter was written, Sardis became one of the greatest cities in the world. They were ruled by the king of Lydia and it had magnificence and luxury and nearly unlimited wealth. Have you heard of Midas' touch? King Midas, to get rid of his gold touch, supposedly washed his hands in a river to get get rid of that touch. Well, it just so happens that that river runs through Sardis. Sardis had great military strength on top of everything else. And it was located in the middle of this, this river valley plain. And it was located on the top of this plateau. Some 1,500 feet above the valley below. Its original name was Sart. Because it was just one city. Sart. Up on the hill. Up on the, this bluff. And and the walls of this plateau were almost perpendicular. So you build a city up here, you were safe and content because there was only one isthmus, one little way to get up. 
unless you were willing to scale straight up the sides of that plateau. There was only one. So these were people of immense wealth. These were people of immense talent and skills. and They had great military strength. The city of Sardis grew until it could no longer just fit up on this plateau and it spilled down to the valley below. It was now a two-tiered city, therefore called Sardis. And the river below bisected it all. And the greatest of the kings of Sardis lived at the time of this, the discovery of the gold. His name is Croesus. Croesus and his people were rich, wealthy, far beyond anything. And they sell, settled into their, their comfort zone. Because they had the financial security. They had a prosperous. There were five roads that led in and out of Sardis. They were kind of at a hub. And they had security. Nobody could get to them. They were smug with self-confidence. And Croesus had heard that Cyrus, the king of Persia, was slowly creeping in on his territory. So he decided that one day he was going to go and make battle against Cyrus, the king of Persia. Well, things didn't go quite well, and he headed back up to Sardis to hunker down. And for 15 days, Cyrus just kept on going at it, kept on going at it to no avail. There was no getting to the city because there was only one path, and Cyrus knew it. And so did Croesus. Cyrus said to his soldiers, listen, you will get a great reward if any of you can get into the city. That night, one of, his, one of the guards of Cyrus was watching the city on, on one side where it, was, it had the perpendicular wall. And he saw something glitter, glittering fall from the wall at night. It was a soldier's helmet. And the soldier saw it. And then he saw somebody come out of a crevice from the wall. Go pick up his helmet and crawl back up the crevice. The soldier and 15 others shimmied their way into that crevice. Broke into the city. Found all the guards asleep. Unlocked the front gate and the whole Persian army came in and defeated Sardis. The sad thing is that it didn't happen just once. The exact same thing happened twice. And then we hear Jesus say here in verse 2, wake up. Wake up! Wake up. It's Jesus doing this real hard. I, you need to wake up because you know what's coming? Death. Wake up. Strengthen what remains among you. Wake up. 
Do you not see that death is coming to you? A spiritual death? And Sardis would be going, the church is hearing this going, I know what this message means. Death is coming to us. Destruction is coming to us. Our spiritual death is knocking on our door. The message for Missio Day Church for you this morning is wake up. Wake up from your spiritual slumber. Get out of your places of complacency, of comfort, of just, I, I'm doing good. I'm doing activities. I'm really busy. I'm doing the life of a Christian. I'm doing good. In fact, I even tithe. I'm doing good. Jesus is saying, uh-uh, wake up. Those are all external things, and you are just a whitewashed tomb filled with dead bones. In all uncleanliness, wake up. I don't know how else I can say it to you this morning, but Jesus is saying to you this morning, wake up. Get out of your lazy spot, your place of complacency and comfort and really nice, I love my life, my Christian life. Jesus is saying, no. Wake up from your spiritual slumber and strengthen what little remains in you. Whatever is still there. He, this is a picture of hope. I love camping. You, you build a huge bonfire at night, and by the time the morning comes, there are just a few embers, aren't there? And this is a picture of Jesus saying, Fan into flame what is still remaining and make it a fire again. Just burning for my glory, for my honor. Fan it into flame. Bring it back to life. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. There's hope for you. There's hope for your church. This is the Lord of the church. He, he describes himself as the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Listen, I am the one who is sovereign and in control. The spirit of the living God is upon me. You've heard him say that. And he says, listen, I am the one who controls. I am sovereign over this. So I can help you bring back to life what is dead. You got Ezekiel in the the whole field of dry bones. And God says, prophesy over them. And Ezekiel's going, are you serious? It's just a field of dry bones. Uh, prophesy over them. Breathe out on them. And what happens? All of a sudden you get this beautiful picture of flesh coming on flesh and bones being tied together again. And all of a sudden there was this amazing army that stood up, that was alive. And Jesus is saying, strengthen what remains in you. Be in the word. Listen to my Holy Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Be alive. Strengthen what remains. There is hope. He says, listen, and there's, there's these imperatives that are here in the Greek. Remember. Remember. 
than what you have received and heard. It's not remember your activities. Remember what the good old days. Remember what you received. What, is, what did they receive? And what did they hear? Anyone? Please tell me the gospel. What did they receive? The, the gospel, the good news. They had received the good news. And what does the good news do? It transforms lives. It takes a, a hard-hearted person and makes them soft for the things of God. It changes dead people into people who are alive before God. Remember what you have received and what you have heard. Remember that. Remember. We are told to remember the gospel. But it doesn't just take going down memory lane. Oh, I remember the good old days when I was in love with Jesus. I love those days. Those are really nice. And then go back to the life. Remember when I really loved the church? Remember when I really loved Bible study? Remember when I really loved discipleship? Remember when I really loved evangelism? Yeah, that was great. He goes on to say, remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it. And repent. Keep it. You don't need anything new. Simply hold firmly to what you have already received. The, the term used here probably refers to Christian traditions and teachings and the word of God as they received. Keep those things close and deep and near to your heart. Keep it. And then repent. He always goes back to repenting, doesn't he? Repent. Stop sinning. Stop your complacency. Stop making excuses. Start obeying. Start obeying. Because if you don't, if you will not wake up, if you will not wake up, I'm going to come to you. Like a thief in the night, and they're probably thinking of the stories of Sardis, and as well as the teaching of Jesus. I'm going to come like a thief in the night, and you're not going to know when. This is the impending judgment of Jesus. I am going to come to you. The good news is that there are still some in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. There's a few names that still remain. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus knows the names. He knows the people, that remnant, that group who are still faithful in that church that is mostly dead. He knows them. And there's a promise. And it's a good promise. First in verse 4. There's a promise for those who persevere, who repent. Remember, keep, and repent. There's a promise for those people. The first is, they will walk with Jesus. And that is good news. They 
will walk with Jesus dressed in white. And these overcomers will be clothed in white garments. It's, it's a picture of putting on Christ. Putting on His righteousness. His holiness. Because apart from Him, we're hopeless. It, it just becomes our deeds and our activities again. Those who overcome, those who per- persevere, they'll walk with Christ, but they're also going to be dressed in white. And it is His righteousness, His holiness. The overcomer will not have his or her name erased from the book of life. It talks about those who God has elected, their name will still be in the book of life. You get, you get Jesus saying here, I will, I will, I'll keep the name. Because back in the, those days, there were lists of citizens. And when somebody would die or move away, what would they do? Paper was very expensive. They would blot it out. They'd blot it out. They wouldn't get a whole new page. They'd blot it out. They'd cover it up. Jesus' promises is that, listen, your name will remain. I won't blot out your name. So on that day of judgment, when we stand before Jesus face to face, yep, your name's still there. You have persevered. You brought back to life what was almost dead. Fan it into flame. Ah, Your name's here. And Jesus ultimately will testify before God. He'll say, yes, this, this is one, Father, that I have purchased. I have purchased with my blood. I will confess this name before my God, my Father, and all of His angels. And can you almost see it? It's like this celebratory thing. Standing before God's judgment seat, and John Meskett stands before Jesus. John, your name's in the book of life. And Jesus turns around to God, the Father, and says, John Meskus! And all the angels, John Mascus, purchased. And his name is in the book of life. Next, please. One after one. One after another. Yes. That freebie. That freebie, you're in the book of life. Matt Preby! Testifying before God the Father. Matt Preby, I have been purchased with the blood of the Lamb. Welcome. Enjoy my Father's presence. He has prepared a table for you. Welcome. Name after name. We, we see in, in Matthew 10, so everyone who acknowledges me before men I will also acknowledge them before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. You acknowledge God 
and his work, his saving work, and your life is filled with the life-giving spirit of the living God, and you are being transformed, and your life is vibrantly lived out before God, infused with his power, you testify of the gospel. Jesus will testify to your name. Before God and all of the angels. I love that. It's like they're all waiting at St. Peter's Gate, waiting for you to walk in. And angels, okay, think about Luke chapter 2. All of heaven opened up, right? Myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands. There were angels upon angels singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. It's just all heaven. And this is the same picture. Judgment day. Jesus testifies before God the Father and all the angels. It is a party. A celebration and a, a roar of applause and angels whether they sing or not, who knows, Kyle, but they, they, are, they are enjoying the work of Jesus Christ, celebrating it. But there's a warning for us, isn't there? In all of this, there is a warning for us to wake up. And not wake up to more activity. This is not a saying, okay, after church, uh, there'll be some sign-up sheets on clipboards over here. Sign up for the children's ministry. Sign up for small group. That's not what this is. This is wake up. Become alive again in Christ. Get over your apathetic life and your complacency. Become alive. And there may be the effect of serving as the Spirit says, hey, do you know you have the gift of teaching or the gift of service or the gift of this or the gift of that? It, it will move into service, but ultimately you become alive first in Christ. So we are, we're called to awake. A.J. Gordon of the late 1800s wrote a, a sermon to his church called The Funeral of the Church. And I thought about, um, about going to his extent, but I, I chose not. One, because it was cost prohibitive. Um, but at the end of his sermon, he had pallbearers come in with the casket. And this is what he said. Ecclesiastical corpses lie all around us. Okay, ecclesiastical, that means like church bodies. Church bodies are lying all about us. The caskets in which they repose are lined with satin and are decorated with solid silver handles and abundant flowers. Like the other caskets, they are just large enough for their occupants with no room for converts. These churches have died of respectability and have been embalmed in self-complacency. If by the grace of God this church is alive, be warned to our opportunity, or the feet of them that buried thy sister Sardis will be at the door. 
to carry D out too. And then in comes the casket. And he asked the church to look inside the casket. What was inside the casket? A mirror. But it's a call for us, isn't it? To awake and to bring alive what, was, what is dead. Strengthen what remains in us. So for you, with this morning, what, what is it that God is saying? Because he, he always ends the same way. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says, awake what? And shake the people that are here. Awake. Come alive. Wake up. Hear. Some of you, some of us, are harder to wake than others. I am a slow waker. You need to kind of come in. Hey, Paul, it's time to wake up. Fifteen minutes later, I'm, I can maybe get a good sentence out. My wife, on the other hand, she's out of bed and she's jabbering. She wakes like that. I wake slowly. Some of you are still considering, huh, is he talking to me? Give me another week, and I'll tell you. Some of you are going, hmm, I know, yeah. That's me. But we're all called to wake up. We're all called to strengthen what remains in us. That, that little ember. Because none of us have, I'm not being judgmental, none of us have the, that vibrant Christian life where I go, Wow. 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 That person is so on fire for Jesus. Their life is just consumed. People are drawn to him or her in such a way that, wow. I love you. But that's not us. Some of us are bibliophiles who just love the Bible so much that we will memorize whole sections of it or will become such students of it that we can just spout it off at any time, but yet it has not transformed our hearts in such a way that we are new creations every day and we are falling more in love with Jesus and we are going out serving and reaching and telling the good news. J.C. Ryle, new book that I have, I really encourage you. If you haven't read J.C. Ryle, pick him up. They're short. He has never written a book. He's just written a bunch of papers and people put them together into books. And this one is called Holiness. It's, it's nature, hindrances, difficulties, and roots. Short little thing. He says, I grant freely that it costs little to be a mere outward Christian. A man has only got to attend a place of worship twice on Sunday and to be tolerably moral during the week. He has gone as far as thousands around him ever go in religion. All this is cheap and easy work. It entails no self-denial and no self-sacrifice. If this is saving Christianity, 
and will take us to heaven when we die, we must alter the description of the way of life and write, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to heaven. But it costs something. It costs something to be a real Christian. According to the standard of the Bible, we are enemies to be, there are enemies to be overthrown, battles to be fought, sacrifices to be made, an Egypt to be forsaken, a wilderness to pass through, a cross to be carried, and a race to run. Conversion is not putting a man in an armchair and taking him easily to heaven. It is the beginning of a mighty conflict in which it costs much to win the victory. Hence arises the unspeakable importance of counting the cost. Counting the cost. Let me show precisely and particularly what it costs to be a true Christian. Let us suppose a man is disposed to take service with Christ and feels drawn and inclined to follow him. Let us suppose that some affliction or some sudden death or an awakening sermon has stirred his conscience and made him feel the value of his soul and desire to be truly a Christian. No doubt there is everything to encourage him. His sins may be freely forgiven. However, many and great. His heart may be completely changed, however cold and heart, hard. Christ and the Holy Spirit, mercy and grace are all ready for him, but still he should count the cost. And then he gives a list of how, how we count the cost. I pray, I pray that I, I don't preach these sermons in vain. I pray that you hear these things and don't go, man, it's just Paul applying guilt. My heart for you is that of a doctor. And I want you to imagine a doctor sitting down and saying, got bad news. It's cancer. And the bad news is if we don't address this cancer today, it is slowly going to kill you. But hear me. There's hope. There are cells that are alive in your body, that have a natural defense mechanisms in it, called white blood cells. You heard of them? We need to work at bringing to life what remains. Killing what kills you. And I'm coming with sermons as a doctor tenderly loves his church. It says, we need to come alive. We need to strengthen what remains. We need to put to death the things that are killing us. Come alive. 
we need to be done with complacency. Done. Because it's that very comfort that will kill us. We need to come alive. We need to love the God of Scriptures. We need to savor the gospel and exploit it of all of its treasures. We need to be people who are so in touch with the move of the Holy Spirit who reminds us and points us to Jesus Christ, who convicts us of our sins, who helps us determine the mind of Christ and reveals the will of God, who prompts us on a daily basis to fall in love with Jesus. Those are the people that I want to shepherd. Some of you I know take a while to wake up. I'm patient, but I'm going to keep prodding. Keep prodding. Reminder of the gospel again there is hope. That although there might be death in my life or I've become spiritually complacent, and apathetic to the things of God. There's hope. And I need to fan into flame once again. Be consumed with God. Remember the gospel. Remember. Keep it. Keep it. And repent. As we come to the Lord's Supper, this is, this is a time that we need to remember. Remember all the goodness that we find in Jesus Christ. Remember. Remember. And we keep it near and dear to us. And in that remembering and that keeping, we need to repent. Our church needs to be a church that is marked with repentance towards each other, especially towards God, repenting, oh God, this is, it's been another week. And you know my heart. You know my mind. It's not just a Sunday thing. It's a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday thing. Again, God. For some of you, maybe it has been months, years, since you have really been honest. But his grace is sufficient for you. Sufficient. This meal is open to all who believe in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and they also confess with their mouth and that they are alive in Christ and submitting to the gospel, submitting to his word. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, 
and he broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of blessing and he poured it out saying, this is my blood in the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Those who are serving, please come forward. Take time. Examine your heart. Become. The meal has been prepared for you. All things are ready.